Hi, everybody. Welcome to another Prog Report Top 5 podcast. I've lost count on how many we've done, but we've had a great response, and the audience keeps getting bigger, and the downloads keep getting better, and we're really, uh, we're really excited and thankful for the audience and you guys, all your comments and everything. As always, you can check out the podcasts on iTunes, Google Play. Uh, we're now on Podbean and uh, Stitcher. They're also on YouTube and always progreport.com and Facebook and Twitter for all the news, interviews, and et cetera. Uh, this was one, well, this, this podcast top five uh, was one that we sort of were uh, scared to approach because this is hollowed ground we're going to cover here. And uh, I admit, admittedly am not the expert on this band compared to the two guests that I'm really lucky to have. First, is uh, actually the person who was on the very first top five that we did after Cruise to the Edge, where we ranked our favorite performances on Cruise to the Edge. And that's a colleague, good friend that I work with. And he runs, uh, along with his friend Hunter Ginn, uh, a great podcast called Radical Research, where they discuss some of the craziest and weirdest music. And I'll let him talk a little bit about that. So Jeff Wagner, say hello. Hey, hello. Nice to see. Nice to talk to you again, Roy. I think it's been about six hours. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, I also should point out that uh, so our our good friend Martin Popov, who's uh, the author, music author extraordinaire, uh, who's written like ten thousand music books, <laughs> uh, wrote a Rush album by album book. Right, I think it was maybe a year or two ago that came out, and right. uh, you were interviewed for that one. So definitely, that's your Rush cred right there. And uh, he just released a new book called. Uh, well, for Pink Floyd album by album, where both you and I are on as people he interviews. Uh, to call myself a Pink Floyd expert is <laughs> really exaggerating the, the case, but I'll take it. And uh, so that was a lot of fun. That book is out now, and it's amazing. The pictures, the ways put together, I highly recommend it. All, all of Martin's books are awesome, but these album by album ones are really, really good. Um, Jeff, talk a little bit about your Radical Research podcast and what's going on there. Yeah, right on. Thank you. Um, it, it grew out of conversations I've had with my good friend Hunter Ginn for about, I don't know, 17 years now. We're just complete, you know, incorrigible music geeks like the rest of us. But we tend to go pretty far out into left field on some things on the prog world and the metal world, uh, even like sort of the indie or just kind of just whatever world. And um, we just were like wanting to share that with other people. And, you know, if you start a podcast in 2018, man, you got to have something unique because there's a bazillion of them out there. So yeah. We thought we did have something unique and it's just a niche thing. And just, you know, it's, it's for a small little group of people who care about bands like carbonized or, um, super sister or <laughs> beyond dawn or Panthimonium, and the list goes on and on and on. We've got about a hundred ideas. So that's, that's, yeah. the, that's the basic idea. And yeah, no, it's a, a it's really cool. The last one you guys did on uh, uh, Gincor named after your <laughs> named after your partner was a lot of like nineties kind of cool metal, which was really cool and up, up my alley. And, but really I know about 2% of the bands that you guys talk about on that thing, which is, that's why we have 2% of the listenership. Then <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Okay. Well, let's get to our special guest. Uh, uh, just a great musician, someone we're really fortunate to call a friend and someone that we've had a chance to work with 
on his last many solo albums. You know him from Porcupine Tree, and he's toured with Fish and a bunch of other amazing people. And he's a great singer, songwriter, guitar player. Happy welcome, John Wesley, to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. I feel like I want to clap. I just like, Yay. hi, John. Yeah. John's great. <laughs> John's, John's the best. Awesome. Way. Right. Yeah. Cool. So, John, uh, thanks, man. I appreciate you doing this. Um, I know you have a special tie-in with, with Rush, so I thought that would be really cool to have yeah. you on, and, and uh, I know you're a big fan, but let's bring people up to speed on what's going on in your world. Um, you know, uh, I finished, <clears throat> got off the same cruise you guys got off of, stumbled around for a while, just moved house, moved the studio. So now I'm just getting back into writing uh, the next record for Inside Out, and uh, hopefully we'll get that out in, uh, you know, the, the near future. Other than that, I'm I'm uh, working with a leadership trainer, uh, do a lot of work with him, and, um, and raise a six-year-old. So uh, <laughs> that eats my brain. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a challenge for sure. All right, so um, of course we're getting down to the Rush top five albums. Now I'm going to preface by saying that I'm not I, again. I think I've said this, but I'm not the the Rush expert. I've I'm, I've been a big fan for for many years, but I got into the band in the '80s, late '80s, and um, all I knew from from before that was some of the hits, "Spirit of the Radio" and "Free Will" and Tom Sawyer and a couple of things and. To be honest, at that time, I wasn't the biggest fan of that stuff. I had avoided Rush for a long time um, until sort of the late 80s when I happened to hear a couple of songs I liked. I checked out an album and became a fan sort of from then on. And then slowly but surely you start going back and, and listening to some of the records. But I'm like one of those people that likes the stuff they did after. So after, I mean, when I say after, all the big records that everybody always, you know, praises. So I'm going to have a little bit of that thrown in there, and I'll, I'll try and not get killed for it. So what we'll do is, I guess, John, uh, we'll, we'll start with your five and countdown, and uh, then I'll go, and then and then Jeff, uh, we'll, we'll round up with you, and we'll, we'll go from there. So, so do I start with the record, or do I start with how I'm connected, you know, yeah, uh, tell like where it comes from, the history, or, sh you know, should I save some of those stories uh, as they go along with the album. Yeah, yeah let's, sure. di let's dive in and tell the stories as they go. I think that's a, that's a good way to go. Cool. So what's your number five album and we'll go from there. Uh, number five, and I, I won't really give a story, but I will say that it, hmm. <laughs> how do I pick five of my favorite Rush uh -huh. albums is the problem. Okay. Cause that like, for example, that era that you're talking about, um, there's elements of all that era that I absolutely love. And so number five was actually one of the toughest for me to choose because I was kicking out a bunch of stuff that I truly, truly love. And it, at some points in my life and at some periods of, of rush history, that could have actually been a number five, four, three, two, uh, anything like that. But I had to really get down to the albums that were big influences and connections. Cause uh, I came to rush really, really early on and, and young and as a guitar player, you know, looking for his voice, you know, coming out of Kiss. Kiss was, you know, uh, my first concert, my first love, and I got a Cherry Sunburst Les Paul, uh, you know, being a Kiss fan, and then I heard Rush, and it was over. And so I'll <laughs> leave it at that. But out of that, um, I'm going to go with number five, and uh, <laughs> I, I hate to do it, but, you know, kicking it out, but it's Permanent Waves. Okay. It's my number five. I, I don't think does it, most people would complain about that one, right? I mean, that's that's got the big hits. 
It does. And that's kind of one of the reasons I don't want to say that it's my number five because I want to be all geeky and say, and get all the inside stuff and all the unheard right, stuff. Right, right. But it's such an amazing record. I mean, and they all are. But <laughs> um, there were elements of this record that, you know, I was at first put off by because I had been a Rush fan when Permanent Waves came out. And so the commercialness of it kind of put me off a bit. But then I heard Jacob's Ladder and it was like, oh, yeah, just, you know, and that sucked me in. And this is one of those records that I actually had on eight track. <laughs> That's great. So, uh, you know, um, and cassette and album. And um, so I just used to play it and it just used to rotate and rotate and rotate and rotate. So there you go. Storm clouds have the light of day obscured, looming low and ominous in twilight premature. Thunderheads are rumbling in a distant overture. criticisms critiques well i like it even more as you'll as you'll hear in a okay few yeah <laughs> no but i mean that's it's yeah it's i, I can't imagine being a, a rush fan back then i'm a uh i don't know how old you are john we don't have to talk about our ages because i'm quite old myself but um right uh you know <laughs> put I, it this way i saw the tour yeah see right i i got into him shortly after okay i got into him shortly after I won't tell you how old I was when that album came out. No, I don't even want to. Yeah, know. no. Be, My wife likes to say stuff like, "Oh well, you know, I think I remember that." Was. <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, coming off of Hemispheres, I mean, that was their prog peak in in a lot of ways in yeah. terms of the the extended song lengths and the, yeah. just the, the complication and, and and just how deep they were diving into like composition and and permanent waves i think has all of that it's it, yeah. it's sort of smarter because of hemispheres and farewell the kings you know they they always learn from from their the previous albums and and leapt forward and i think permanent waves is a great crystallization of, of hemispheres and, and and the stuff before it and and I'll, I'd like to talk about it more later because it's sure. Let's do that. The Let's thing, but, but no, it's it's a great pick, and I mean, good. It, it has to well, be the top five. I, I know that it's one of the albums that is held dearly by Rush fans sure. for sure, and sure. Spirit of the Radio, and those songs are inarguable, you know, classics for any era. What I struggled with at, in first hearing those songs for me was the lack of a defined chorus. You know, when you're younger. And you're mm -hmm. at the time I'm listening to Kiss and Def Leppard and Genesis and, and 80s Genesis or, you know, whatever's going on. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, Spirit of Radio is confusing, <laughs> you know, I, you have to sort of mature into that, I think. So um, now, of course, the radio, you know, I, I, I don't I don't know how they pulled that off. Me. That's the thing that I don't understand about this band is even the stuff that is commercial is still so technical and, and intense and well written how they pulled that off into having hit after hit after hit for 30 years i that is 
that's the biggest accomplishment that I think. Yeah. Can't yeah. Be and it was actually the hits that kind of put me off at first. Right. I was like, Oh my God, it's a radio song. No way. And then it was like, Oh, that's really good. How the hell do you play that? Yeah. There's still like intricacies in there, right? Oh my yeah. God. Yeah. You it's know, crazy. Um, amazing. All right. So uh, I'll jump in my, my number five. What I did was because I liked some of the, those albums in the late eighties and the nineties that, I went back and I started listening to some of them because, you know, it's not stuff that I listen to every day. And sometimes you romanticize an album that you think was great and you go back and you listen to it and you go, oh, yeah, this is not great. Um, right. You yeah. know what I mean? And sure. uh, so I, I went back to some of these and the one that, and the album that surprised me still held up that I liked a lot. And I went, oh, my God, yeah, I like every song. I like this one. I like that one. That this is I, I why did I stop listening to this is uh, I'm gonna go with counterparts from '93, uh, sort of really not a proggy album, but um, still uh, produced by Peter Collins um, and had an, a bunch of hits off of it. Uh, and some of the riffs there are still ones that I always kind of hum and always think about the stick it out riff. I love. Oh yeah. Um, Animate is one of my favorite Rush songs yes. ever. Yes. That thing and, is amazing. And uh, God, Nobody's Hero is like amazing. Oh, that's an amazing track. It's an amazing song. And Everyday Glory at the end is awesome. And Cold Fire is great. Uh, I, it just was a bunch of gems in there that I went, wow, I, I, I forgot how amazing this album is. So I, I, I sort of am going to try to go through all the different periods so that I cover a lot of the stuff that I liked. But that's one album that I, I really used to listen to a lot and kind of made me go back and start discovering some of the classics. So maybe not a popular pick, but that's maybe my no, most obscure. No. I don't know. That's a great album. It's one of these albums that I forgot that I used to listen to. And then one of the tracks will come up and I realize that I know it by heart. Hmm. And I'm like, yeah. okay, so I really kind of did I, listen I to did. A, I, I put on Cut to the Chase and I knew all the words. And I hadn't yeah. heard that song in 10 years. Yeah. It's I mean, crazy. Yeah, Between Sun and Moon is another one that like people don't talk about much. But uh, every time I listen to that album, that's, that's a highlight too. And like that thing is just dense with great moments. Oh. And I also remember when it came out that uh, – it was really kind of being hailed as a return because they just were dropping keyboards and they were dropping synthetic sounds and yeah. you know, just that trio formation. It was earthy again and heavier again. 
Uh, yeah. You know, I, the guitar sound started to get heavier. Yeah. yeah. And it was, you know, I think too many people made too much of it being like a return because they never went back. You know, there was nothing like, yeah. uh, yeah, 2112, but, um, it's, it's great rush and it's them just constantly, they blow my mind because of how well they adapt to every era, you know? Oh yeah. Oh, well that was right in the middle of Nirvana and Pearl Jam and grunge and everything. And they, they found a way to not, they got rid of the synths, which wouldn't have fit that time and, and did this sort of raw guitar record, but it still is produced. Awesome. The sound is great. The drums sound amazing. And, uh, it still didn't go too far over the edge of trying to be grunge. It is still very much rush, which is what, yeah. which is why it held up. Well, I think their changes too are kind of marked by what they're listening to. And I know that like, uh, Alex was into like I mother earth. And of course I think he got that guy for his Victor thing. And like these right. kind of like, you know, heavier alternative bands at the time, they were actually listening to that stuff too. And I mean, like you can yeah. look at that through their entire career of how, what they were absorbing that was contemporary led into their music. All right, Jeff, you're up. Yeah. Uh, my number five is one that probably doesn't land on a lot of people's favorites, I imagine. But, um, I, I struggle with five cause that's the one where you're like, okay, you got to kick out 10 others. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, like, like John said, but, um, um, it's caress of steel because I like rush in the seventies and I like them as a metal band. And for what counted as metal back in, you know, the mid seventies, you didn't have much. You had like Judas priest. I don't think even scorpions were quite metal at that point. You had Sabbath, I guess the purple, if you want to call them metal, but, you know, Rush was right there. And, um, you know, it, it's a raw album. It's a really murky album, but it really blasts off from Fly By Night. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, it just kind of shows that they're, again, absorbing influences. This is the first album where we get a sidelong track, The Fountain of Lemneth. Um, you know, that that's maybe not a perfect long song, but I think it's a super interesting long song. A lot of experimental moments on it. Great riffs, just great metal riffs that you could tear out of the, you know, the metal kind of riff book and yeah. play, and they just sound killer. Um, and, and I think Alex really comes into his own as a guitarist on this album. His solos and his work are just so textured and, and just kind of so... They, they run the gamut, I think, of, of guitar emotion, at least for what they're doing at that time. And yeah, he's great all over it. And then, like, you know, stuff like Bastille Day and Necromancer, those are early metal, even progressive metal. And then you get Lakeside Park, kind of acts as a kind of a mellower counter, the heavy stuff. So yeah, love the album. That, that's yeah. an album that I see sometimes. Uh, the people that like it like it as like hardcore, you know, love it as it's like a top three or five rush album for them and then there's other people that don't really know that album at all sure I, I just i had a hard time like you know that's coming over some great great albums for me if i'm if i'm choose to do this desert island five but yeah uh, I, it's very special and it's also it's one of those albums too that i don't know if you guys agree and i'd like to hear your thoughts on it but like you know it's it, it's not a it's not a perfect production it's not really a flawed production but it's just kind of murky and, and you know kind of drab and kind of dark but it lends itself well to the to the material and I always like that because I, I like production as an element of like, you know, a part of the great album is of yeah. how it sounds. And if you can, yeah. you know, nothing sounds like this anymore because it's so easy to get the quote unquote perfect production, right? Right. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> some of the things, some of the guitar sounds that Alex was coming up with <clears throat> on Fly By Night, uh, you know, the, the, 
he was going back and forth between the 335 and a Les Paul, if I think I remember correctly, in that era into Marshalls. And it was just, and I'll probably get creamed by someone who said, no, he used a high watt then or used something. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever. He had that thing going on. And in Caressa Steel, some of the stuff that he had started developing in Fly By Night, it came into fruition very quickly into Caressa Steel. Yeah. I, I love it's drum sounds. Yeah. I love drum sounds from the seventies more than drum sounds from today by a Agreed. lot. Yeah, they're so well, my favorite drum sounds are I'm just the sidebar since we stumbled on the the Elton John records. Those oh, yeah. are like the greatest drum sounds ever, and no one ever sounds like that anymore. It's, it's well, you know, they used yeah. to take the bottoms off and deaden the 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 heads. You know, they used to deaden the kits, and now you know everything is really live and open and reverby. Yeah. And back then, they were really deadened and melodic. And and Neil still had some way of cutting through all that. It's just yeah. amazing. Rooting in the tower, watching for his lines. All right, John, with number four. Okay. Now, <clears throat> the top four, any of the top four could have been number one. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, you know, again, it's been, this has been a really difficult process for me. <laughs> <laughs> I love hearing people struggle. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and ordering these, I had to go to, I had to not, I had to get out of the actual quality of the album itself and get into how they affected me personally. So, uh, number four is going to be Hemispheres. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, it came out in October of 78. Uh, by that time, I was a full-on Rush geek. And the same thing that happened in um, Permanent Waves where uh, Permanent Waves was a little bit too commercial. Um, Hemispheres coming on from a Farewell to Kings was almost too the opposite direction was so deep and was so, and I hate to use the word prog, but it was just so, Oh, it's total prog. It's as prog as it, you know, as it gets. And so that was an album that took me a while. At first I was like, Oh oh goodness. Well, I like the way that Cygnus X one book two theoretically continues on from Cygnus and the album before, but it took me a while to get into it. And once I did, it was just, I couldn't stop listening to it. Uh, and again, you know, at this time I was probably uh, 16, 17 years old and I saw the tour. <laughs> so, um, what kind of, what, what, I don't know if you remember, but like what kind of venues are they playing back then? Is it, is it arenas at that point or? Oh yeah. 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 Um, Lakeland civic center. I want to say that was, I think all the big shows I saw with them until later in history was, uh, was at a, a place here called the Lakeland civic center, which would have been about a 10,000 seater. Yeah. So, but, uh, amazing 
show, amazing tour. Um, I want to say they played most of the whole thing in order. I can't, you know, I can't remember the tour exactly because I was 16 years old or 17 years old, but just a, a mind blowing, it, uh, very developmental, you know, it, I was in a very developmental time in my guitar playing and this uh, record really, really uh, started influencing that. choice knowing neil and working with alex did you ever discuss these albums with them and learn anything um not learn anything uh because most of the stories are out there um what they were more interested in is how i kind of connected to them and where i was in my life and you know um and how much and how deep they kind of went you know so after a few drinks you know you start oh dude and then it was this and then it was that and you know and and i'd get some good laughs you know (laughs) (laughs) you know isn't that like what a musician probably most wants to hear not so much like oh you know the the you know what amp did you use on such and such album or like why did you make this musical choice but like kind of how they impacted people emotionally because really like can you get down to it like that's what music's all about and i think musicians must and you're one of them. And I want to know, like, if you've had this experience, and of course you have, but like, mm-hmm. it, do you prefer like people coming up to you emotionally or technically? Definitely emotionally. Definitely emotionally. Yeah. Because, you know, especially the way I write too, I write all the lyrics and um, which was another thing I was developing at the time, reading Neil's lyrics and go, Oh my God, <laughs> someone can talk this, this deep. And I had pretty good. We were reading some of the same things, you know, um, which actually helped in the friendship later on in developing our friendship was that we had connected with a lot of the same books, you know, and, and, and things and his lyric writing and the courage in his lyric writing um, helped me to open doors that, you know, took years for me to develop. I certainly didn't develop as quickly as he did. Um, but those were the things that we kind of chatted about. And then, you know, um, when I was talking to Alex, you know, uh, well, on, on different occasions, it'd be like, Oh yeah, man. And then there was that time I was stealing that thing from you. And, you know, there's a great story that goes with that a little later on. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Very cool. Um, so right, yeah, I'm, emotionally. So yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. I mean, you don't want to sit there and talk about amps, uh, mm-hmm. you know, for, for hours. Like, Although it, has, get although it has been done. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's <laughs> what I'm saying. Like, I, I've been around the, these kinds of conversations and like, I'm, I'm listening to fans ask, musicians about these technical things about certain albums and you know i know the minutiae as good as, as well as anybody else for a band i like but i don't really want to do that to a musician because it's uh, it's like they can't change yeah. it why don't you just yeah. relate to them you know uh yeah it seems like right. that's more what everybody would 
want to talk about. Yeah, people yeah. love you know hearing about what where you were in your life at that point. Yeah. How this affected you in your life? Yeah. What did it cause you to do? Because each of these albums from you know learning songs off of them and playing them and and researching what he was doing and checking his rigs out in concert altered the way altered the course of my life altered the course of my path as a musician so you know what i always so as a fan what i always sometimes want to ask is i i have favorite not just songs i have favorite like parts like sure. there's a favorite 30 seconds of a, oh, of yeah. a song that i like and i and i've done this before i ask you know so what was the thought of that and, and coming that if I do an interview on these things? And a lot of times it's like, I don't know. <laughs> it's yeah. just, it's just yeah. sort of happened. Yeah. <laughs> you, know? yeah. you know what I mean? There's not this big infinite like thing that came out of, it just comes out of nowhere and it, it just sounds good. Yeah. I'm sometimes good. the story of making albums is like a lot more boring than like the, the beautiful yeah. sort of escape that it actually, yeah. you know, is when you listen to it. Right. Yeah, one of the exactly. deeper stories that goes with this record is that it was so complex and they worked so hard on it and it was so difficult to play live that they, at the end of it, they were kind of like, ah, we're not going to do that again. <laughs> so <laughs> from, from then on, it was like, let's, you know, let's play something we really enjoy playing and not, you know, and this, this was really work for them. And yeah. yeah. Recording and the and the live shows. I the boy, La Via Strangiato. Come on, man. Oh my God. That's like yeah. the greatest. Wow, that is the greatest. Uh, anyway, <laughs> I'm, I'm gonna. All right, uh, I'm gonna jump. Um, I'm gonna jump forward uh, ten years from my number four, and actually, I'm gonna go with Clockwork Angels, the last album. Yes. And their, uh, I guess, it's their twentieth, and, yeah. and the last album they did. And I, in any era, for any band, anywhere, anytime, this album kicks ass. It is a great album. It 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 goes back as much as they did in twenty years to the proggy side of the band. Um, a lot of longer songs, a lot of great playing. I mean, Neil is just still destroying uh, mm -hmm. after many decades of doing it. He's playing oh, yeah. as good as ever. The opening song, Caravan, is is just a killer. It's heavy. It's ballsy. Sounds massive. Um, and the the last song, the the Garden, is just beautiful, epic. Um, I love that album. I couldn't, I had sort of lost, uh, you know, Snakes and Arrows and Vapor Trails weren't among my favorites. And I thought, okay, they're just sort of, they're good. Those albums mm -hmm. are good. It just wasn't blowing me away. And I thought, okay, they're sort of, they're fading out, you know? And, sure. um, but the last album was, was great. I love it a lot. I still listen to it. Um, and it was one of my favorite albums of that year. So, uh, yeah, yeah Clockwork Angels. <clears throat> Yep. The camera's on the zone to the distant dream of the city. The Yeah, I, that's an album that, like, unlike you, I was kind of more into Vapor Trails and, and uh, Snakes and Arrows. And, uh, you know, I heard all this talk about Clockwork before it came out. And it was like, again, supposedly this big return to the prog. And, 
you're right. There, there's plenty of prong on it. There's plenty of dips into the past, you know, and, and just little nuances without kind of, you know, plagiarizing themselves. Um, but over the years, like when I put it on now, like the last couple of years, I'm like, okay, I think I'm just more ready for it now. So I think it's one of those albums where I just wasn't ready. You know, it's yeah. my fault, but cause it's great. And I love that it's probably their last album. That's a great album to go out on. Yeah. Great. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It just makes all the sense in the world. Wraps it yeah. all up. Um, all right, Jeff, uh, your number four. Um, this album is probably the most, I think it's the most abrupt shift they ever took musically. And as we know, as Rush fans, you know, every step was kind of brave and you're just wondering where they're going to go next. But I'm going to pick Signals, which is sometimes my third favorite, but yep. today it's my fourth. Um, I think Signals is a masterpiece. And um, I, I don't want to belabor the point, but I was kind of talking earlier about how they would absorb influences. And, you know, they also always embrace new technology. And... Um, they were always just looking to challenge themselves in other ways. And I think even in a production aspect, them and Terry Brown kind of challenged themselves to do this kind of album. And it was 1983. So things were, things were kind of sleeker. Things were a little more synthier. Is synthier a word? I guess. Sure. Yeah, sure. And you know, so, so then you got, you know, so they devoured all this new technology, absorbed it, mastered it, and then spat it out in the form of this like state of the art rush. And that's what Beatles yeah. is. And it's just, it's eight songs. They're all really good to freaking great. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think they nailed it. And I, and it's of all the synth albums, and I like them all to some degree or another, this is the one. And like stuff like Analog Kid and Countdown kind of even feel like epics. Even if Oh, Analog Kid is Analog just, Kid is amazing. Oh, yeah. Oh. Those, but those two just kind of feel like these big songs they used to do, but they're just not that big. But they have that grandiose quality. So, man, I adore this album. And I just – yeah. It, it's uh, it's weird because it people have told me that oh I think it just sounds cold like I think there's a warmth to it actually I don't oh no no this this is this is one of those albums that you know was fighting for my my top five um that you know it it was in several times you know because I've had the order has shifted several times and it wasn't until this afternoon that I made the final decision <laughs> and this is one of those albums that was in and I mean I could go on and on about this album the subdivisions and analog kid and the chemistry is just just mind-blowing shit <laughs> it's yeah, just you know yeah. i played subdivisions in bands for years and years and you years know and yeah years. i i can play some music and i kind of just by ear figured that song out on both the the keyboard and the bass mm -hmm. i kind of realized that's kind of it was kind of like unlocking a key of like wow this song is so intricate and 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 just detailed yet it doesn't sound that complicated on the surface it's even in a weird time signature i think right yeah and lyrically, <clears throat> through the whole record, uh, it, it reached out to me in certain parts of, of where it was in my life, and especially subdivisions. If you if you take it apart lyrically, yeah. Um, again, you know, it was this guy trying to be on the road in, in his at that point, um, shoot, my early twenties or late late teens, early twenties, and um, the the concept of subdivisions is kind of had where I'd come out of, and you know you're trying to find yourself, and there's all these things going on. And it was in one of those eras of my life where I was trying to figure it out, and some of the things, some of the elements and subdivisions kind of solidified what I was feeling and didn't know how to say. Conformer be cast out. Yeah, and and that was a it was a big deal, you know. Yeah, this, I just the sound of that album. It's still it, it it's dated to some degree, but it still sounds. 
so epic and loud and massive yep. that it's yep. it's gr- it, you can still listen to it to this day and hmm. uh, subdivisions it's 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 up there for my favorite rush song it's in it's oh, in yeah. like it's in the conversation yeah yeah, yeah absolutely yeah, yeah. So, absolutely Okay, uh, John, number three. Number three. Well, now this album, <laughs> again, could have been number one and was at one time in the number one slot. And it's not one of the production albums. It is All the World's a Stage. Uh-uh. And All the World's a Stage was the first time I ever heard Rush. I was, I want to say I was 14 years old, ninth grade, big Kiss fan, and and someone busted that out. (laughs) And it was like, oh my God, what is this? And you had him playing through those Marshalls and that Les Paul and that sound. And Neil, I'd never heard anyone play musical drums. Okay, not only does he have a skill set, but there was someone that was like, there were melodies on the drums. Yeah, and uh-huh. and the energy of the live performance and just the rawness of those songs, and again, it's almost like a greatest hits of the first three record records. So it's from beginning to end. You just listen to it, and there isn't a duff thing on it. It's just unbelievable, and it captured me, and that launched me into trying to be a Rush fan. And I remember I was really. I wasn't one of these kids that ever had a lot of money. I was always spending money on my guitars, right? So buying records was really tough. So I didn't go back and buy the first three records till very later in life because I had the what I considered the songs that I wanted off of them on that record and done in a way, you know, I've always been a fan of, of live performances. And one of the things I've always done in my life is perform live constantly through my whole life. Even when I'm not, you know, touring with a bigger band, I'm home, I'll gig at home. And so there was that connection to this record. So it was the record that opened the door for me mm. and, uh, and, and started to change the way I played guitar because I'd come out of the Kiss era and Aerosmith, I was, you know, Toys in the Attic was big. And then I heard this and everything changed.
that's so that's awesome. an awesome story. And man, I'll tell you what, the triple gatefold, how cool did they look? Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> Just, you know, and, and that was the other thing. I spent money on that record and I was like, this is worth every scruffed up penny that I had, you know, it was, it was just the bomb. No. And that guitar sounded though, that era amp is something I still chase to this day. And, and I still use, I use amps that are 1975 Marshalls. So, I mean, they're from that era, that sound, that oh, tone. That yeah. what, I mean, what is it about that, John? Cause like, like Roy was saying with the drum sounds, you know, that, that they got in the seventies on, on studio records were great. Like, there's just this warmer vibe to them. Is that? Well, there is definitely a thing that happened <clears throat> in the late seventies, early eighties, um, digital consoles came about. Um, uh, this would have been done, especially live. It would have been done on an analog desk, probably a Midas back then or a Neve. And um, to give you an idea in my studio, I have 16 channels of a, of a mic preamp called Vintech. And Vintech is essentially the patent on the early Neve desks ran out. And there were guys that found that all the parts from the desks, the channels in those Neve desks still existed. So what they did is they took those, those, um, those, uh, the plans, I can't remember what they're called, uh, and recreated those channels. So what happened was back then you'd have these, these big analog desks that would smear everything together and put it through those, those magical non-digital analog circuitries that created this warmth and this thing. So everyone was chasing the, the ease and sim simplicity of using a digital desk. But what we sacrificed is we sacrificed that warmth of those mic pre's. So what guys started to do in, um, right after this era, as soon as those desks, is they used to take these old Neves desks that were being taken out of the studio, stand them up in the corner of the room, run all the inputs into the Neve desk, then into the digital desks, mm. or they would rip channels out and place them in the corner of the room. So you'd walk, literally walk into a studio and you see a pile of, of channels uh, stacked up against the wall with cables into them. So there was this thing that was happening until the digital technology of the late 70s, early 80s took over and these records were made on that. Wow. On those desks. Wow. Well, there you go. That's, a, that's some insight. Yeah, I was just going to say thanks for that. That's nice. awesome really insight. I'm so anal right that, that my, my chain for work, and it's one of the things that when, when Steve and I first started doing guitars together and he, he would fly to Tampa to do guitars, one of the things was I was chasing that tone and he heard, he mixed my record. Uh, I can't even remember it. <laughs> I'm thinking much right now. I can't remember my own records. He mixed one of my records in 2005. He heard the guitar sounds I was getting. And he's like, how did you do that? And I showed him. And then all the way up into his solo records, um, he always did. He always tracked guitars with me after that, because that was the sound that we were chasing analog mic pre's. Well, you told me one story that I put in, into my book mm -hmm. about Stephen Wilson coming to you mm -hmm. for the guitar sound yep. that you had at the time. Um, and he ended up using that you, uh, on uh, Blackest Eye. On Blackest Eye, exactly. Yeah, so. Exactly. The, yeah. Um, he wanted me to have a, they had done the record. Um, he got back the, you know, the initial kind of rough mixes and he's like, it's not heavy enough. And he had seen me playing with fish. And when I was playing with fish at the time, I was touring two 100-watt Marshalls with mid-70s 4x12s and a Les Paul. And he's like, did you add some of that to this? 
So I did through the old Neve Neve clone Mike Breeze uh, into Pro go. Tools and and sent it over there. That sounds awesome. That's good stuff, man. Thanks for those stories. All right. So my number three uh, was talked about. So not too much to add, but I'm going to go with hemispheres there you uh, go. for my number three because. Uh, I'm not, uh, my issue with the older 70s albums is just the, uh, the, the Getty's voice and mm-hmm. the high screeching yeah. is not always my favorite, if I'm being honest. So, and it got, things got more melodic and I think his singing got better and the production got better and sort of from Hemispheres On is all the stuff that I really like. There's stuff on 2112 and, and uh, Farewell to Kings I can I can appreciate. And I like some of that stuff, but it's not my favorite. Um, but Hemispheres is the one from that era that I think is my favorite. And so that's why I put it on here. And yeah. and, and the, the, the the peak of it is the, the Via Strangiata, which is, which is just the, masterpiece. The, the masterpiece instrumental of all time. Oh, God. And, yes. um, yeah. and so, uh, so that, that, that's why I'm including. I mean, we covered a lot of it before and maybe we will again, but... Uh, so that's that's my big uh, 70s album that I'm putting on my list. there i have no arguments with hemispheres i want to make that known because uh it may or may not be on my list (laughs) (laughs) uh all right let's go with you number three jeff yeah 2112 which is often my second favorite but um there's another that's been creeping in the last few years but 2112 like kind of takes what caress of steel was and i already explained why i love that one so much but it's just it's just kind of not to oversimplify what's really an absolutely stunning album with 2112, but like, it's just everything caressive steel was, but better. I yeah. Mean, they, every department, you know, like you still have the side long song, but that was even more well-crafted on 2112. Right. Uh, that was one of the most perfect side long songs of all, like if you, of, of any band ever. Well, yeah, I know. And it's so hard to do. And I don't, <laughs> I think that's the standard you know, to which it should that's still the be standard. Measured. You know, because yeah, like, does it feel like it passes in eight minutes? Yes. Like, is it cohesive? Does, does it have like any extraneous parts? Well, no, it doesn't have any extraneous parts. No. Just, it just works so perfectly. And um, yeah. so there's that. But, you know, a lot of people talk about 2112 in the context of the title track. But I think that second side is just here. We're Rush. We're, we're becoming masters now. And these are five yeah. other kinds of songs yeah we're going to present to you and start kind of playing off of because really all those songs are just they're all quite a bit different from one another and um yeah i think they're all great even the ballad tears which i know some people don't like but i just think that's a just a mournful somber epic ballad excuse me did you just say someone didn't like a rush song did you (laughs) (laughs) yes there are some reasons here for tears i guess oh oh, a little subset of rush fans i guess 
Do you know? Cool. You know what I, I do like is uh, the Stephen Wilson version of a Twilight Zone. The Twilight oh, yeah. Zone. Yeah. Yeah, there's a really good version of that on the reissue that they did, which was uh, really, really cool. Great song. Um, great, great song. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know what? What Again, what's ahead of, of their time with 2112 is how many albums have you heard since that have that whole concept thing of music will save the people and the guitar? And, and that's just been done to death, but they did it already. So there was re- there's no need. Yeah. Yeah. And it also it also was part Ayn Rand. And it was part, you know, part kind of right. some of the sci-fi that, that he had been reading, some of the some of the kind of more dystopian stuff, um, and and there it is. It's it's in song form. It's twenty minutes. It's them learning from their prog favorites. It's, it's incredible. And that contributed to my, you know, my all the world's a stage thing. It was on all the world's a stage. Yeah. And, you know, that was <clears throat> that was when I heard that the first time. I didn't hear it on twenty one twelve. I heard it on all the world's a stage and just. You know. I'm glad that made the list. That's important that that album made the list, Jeff. You covered a lot of, we would have been lynched. There's still okay. one album, just, just for anybody paying attention. There's one album that I'm not sure anybody's going to have in here. So this is interesting. All right, well, okay. thanks. Uh, <laughs> uh, John, number two. Number two. Uh, well, again, this was number one for a while. And when I uh, I made the choice, I had to, I had to, I don't know how to, how to describe it. I had to go what connected to me and what affected me at different parts of my life. But uh, um, Clockwork Angels is uh, my number two. Hey, nice. I did not expect that. Good for you. Yeah. Well, it was almost number one. Wow. Um, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> um, having been a fan for years, right, and just followed it, you know, I, I kind of got lost in the 90s a bit. You know, I was doing the single dad thing and touring and, you know, so I wasn't buying that many records. And so I wasn't as in touch with some of those records uh, as I should have been. And then later on getting back into it now looking back at the whole thing, seeing the progression of them as musicians and artists, and then getting to know them as people, you know, over the last, you know, 10 or 11 years. um, When I heard clockwork angels, uh, all of those elements started to connect. Does that make sense? Um, it's, it's like, oh my God, this isn't like, uh, you know how like a lot of bands at the end of their careers, they're mailing it in or they're yeah. spent. Right. And they have so much, they did so much. You know, I was like, well, how could it be? How could they go someplace else? How could he come up with more creative guitar parts? How could Neil play better than he already has? How could he write something interesting when he's already mined the depths of so many different things where is he going to go to find 
something in that, you know, in that thing. And I thought, you know, and Getty, you know, he's got to be tired by now. You know, Getty was late 50s. Uh, oh, God, maybe, maybe even pushing 60 at this point. How is he going to keep up those vocal performances? And yeah. there it was. And they even brought in, you know, Nick Raskulinitz, who I would have never, you know, predicted would, would uh, you know. Now, where, where is he from? Um, well, he, he had a big history in L.A. and, and, and worked with just tons of bands, the, the names of all I can. But he, he'd collaborated with them um, uh, on, on Snakes and Arrows. And I thought, well, you know, they'll move on to someone else. And Snakes and Arrows is a freaking great record. But by using him again on, on Clockwork Angels, that collaboration solidified. And it, it's, it's a record that I can't listen to pieces of it, right? So, you know, I don't go to songs anymore. I just listen to the whole thing. It's a piece. You know, it, it, for me, you know, the sidelong song is, is that whole record. It just goes from, from one to end. And, and to see it live as many times as I was able to see it live. And, you know, there's a great, I saw Nick at one of the gigs and he was in the pit and he knew every single drum lick, like him and <laughs> Neil. And, you know, Neil had described to me the way that he worked with Nick and, and that Nick really did know every single drum lick. Um, <laughs> that's how attentive he was. And um, when I was on the Stephen Wilson tour, uh, uh, his solo tour, we did a show in Toronto while they were finishing up that record. And I got to go hang out with the guys for a morning at the studio and uh, see the setups and, and find out that, you know, Alex had gone back to using Marshalls again and all the classic guitars were there. And I got to touch them and hold them. And, and Neil explained to me what he was doing with his drums and, and where the room he was writing in. And then I found myself in the breakfast nook sitting with Neil, Getty, and Alex talking about this record. And then uh, to hear it uh, come to life uh, in such, you know, and not be like, well, I'm their friends. I got to be nice about it. I hope it's good. And then to have it come out and just be some beyond what I had comprehended. And for me, it is the, uh, the epiphany of all of their talents. And so, and I don't know if you guys got to see the tour at all, but when you got this record yeah. and you got this tour, what you got is master musicians at the height of their game that never lost it. And that well, when I was surprised. I agree, man. And one thing I, I didn't talk about was the tour. Cause what I found interesting was they played almost the whole album on the tour, yeah. mm -hmm. which is not something also that a band that's this long into it, um, is that's taking a risk, right? Because yeah, when you've absolutely. been around that long, mm -hmm. the new the new song is bathroom break time, right? Oh it's yeah, absolutely. So everyone leaves. You know they're like, yeah, and they're like, screw you, we're playing eight nine songs from this sucker. You're gonna, <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna have to eat it. I always got the sense, and I mean, maybe maybe John could verify just because you you're closer to those guys, obviously. But um, I always got the sense that like I'm sure they've been into into every album they've done. This is Rush. This is what they do it out of complete integrity. They wouldn't really, sure. they didn't like it, but I always got the sense that Clockwork Angels, they were like supremely proud of it. Like, like really, really into really behind. And I think, is that why they played so many songs live? Because it just, yeah, they loved really it. They loved the record. They, they, you know, at this point in their life, uh, you know, financially, they didn't really need to tour anymore. And um, they would always talk about doing a tour and it would come down to, you know, are, do we love it? Do we still love it? Mm -hmm. And 
that, you know, they loved this record so much that they were like, well, not only are we going to tour and, you know, we're really sorry to all the fans that came here to hear that obscure thing off of album number seven or whatever, but you're going to get as much of that as we can physically do, but we're going to play what we love as well. And we really want to play Clockwork Angels. Mm -hmm. Right. Cool. Cool. <laughs> Okay, so my number two is, uh, I guess, Jeff, because you know me, you're, you're going to know this is not an obscure choice for me, but sure. uh, maybe it's an odd choice. But the reason why it's at number two, and it was a choice between swapping it with Hemispheres or not at number three, but the reason why I'm putting this up at number two was is, is because it is the first Rush album I bought, and it's the first Rush album I listened to from beginning to end, and it's what really got me to start learning about the band at that time. Um, and that's Presto. And which I still think is awesome. <laughs> um, so so uh, it, it is what it is. But the, you know, the first song I heard that made me buy the album was not actually Show Don't Tell. They released the second single, which was Chain Lightning. Oh, yeah. And great song. Great I just song. thought that was like the greatest thing ever. Sleeper Rush. I'd, oh. I'd never heard a song that cool at yeah. that time. I mean... That's right in the middle of hair metal. Again, I'm listening to, you know, Def Leppard and Tesla and all that stuff and loving that stuff. And then that song gets played on out of nowhere. And it was like nothing I'd heard. And I thought it was awesome. And I, and then I was surprised because it didn't sound like Spirit of the Radio or Tom Sawyer. It sounded current and uh, memorable and shorter. And I could absorb it at the time. And so I thought, uh, okay, I'm going to buy this. And uh, it turned out that I love the whole thing. There's some really cool songs in there. The title track, I think, is, is one of my favorite songs ever that, that, that the band has done. Um, and then that Anagram song is a sleeper favorite for me, just because lyrically it's insane. And I think it's so cool. I mean, I guess anybody listening to this knows that song, but in that song, every line is just made up of words making up other words, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the whole song. And to write that, I thought was utter genius. It's a gimmick or whatever, but and and probably makes no sense if you read it in in a, a complete, you know, like a lyric. I mean, as a song, but uh, line by line, I was like, wow, you could just come up with these for days. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, and so, what is it? He says, uh, he and she are in the house, but there's only me at home. That's such genius. Yep. I think that's amazing to write that out of nowhere. So I thought that's cool. So that's my number two. I don't know if that's an album that you guys liked uh, or not. It was one that I came to very late. Same here. Same here. That was a period in my life where I wasn't actually buying records. 
for, yeah, for, for me, it was more was about like, shit. yeah, for me, it was more about like where I was at musically and like, I, you know, I kind of dropped off a rush around power because I was just so totally into and no regrets because I still love this stuff. But like mm -hmm. the Metallica and Megadeth that was coming out at the time, the kind of like really left field metal stuff like Voivod and Fate's Warring that was happening underground and um, like Rush just wasn't doing it for me because it was different. And but but what it took was like a, an appreciation of like later in my life of like, I don't know, 10 CC and police and XTC and eighties. Yes. To go, Oh wait, maybe I should check out that, that eighties rush stuff again. Yeah. The nineties and wow. Like they were, they were masters then too. So there was this whole kind of like, you know, string of rush albums I had to, had to discover in the late nineties, early two thousands that had happened. And wow. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, well, available what, is the song I want to, point out from presto i think love it i love that song phenomenal. yeah that's a great song too and and what actually what's cool about presto is that they did step away from the synths for that album that that was a return to to having alex more up front and guitar and uh so that was a good change and so that's important to know yeah they were starting to scale Uh, Jeff, number two. Uh, yeah, this is an album that's crept up slowly. I've always loved it, always loved it, always loved it. But it just has been creeping up over the years to – it's on John's list, um, Permanent Waves. Yeah. Uh, I just – one crafty thing about this album, and I have no idea if this was intentional. Probably not because, you know, fans read more into stuff than the bands do. But um, it's just it's, – it's an album of like three halves. Right. Because you've got two sophisticated kind of radio ready, straightforward songs with Spirit of Radio and Free Will. All right. Yep. And they actually emerged as the radio staples. So then you get these two more restrained kind of contemplative things like Entree New and Different Strings. And, you know, in my older age, as, as I get, you know, more experience behind me and wisdom, and that's very diplomatic to myself. But mm -hmm. like, like, good God, like those are great songs. Those are so rich. And, and textured and detailed and there's so much depth in those songs and then you get two prog epics you get jacob's ladder yeah. and of course natural science um, right. and to me like th those are the pairs it's like three pairs yeah actually or three halves if you know that's illogical but you know what i mean um that's a great that's a great way of, of phrasing it you know they're mixed up you know they're mixed up throughout the album but to me they always pair those together and it's just got this it's got a vibe for me that like no other album has if you're listening to it in its whole, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. But it just showed them just top of their game. Yeah. yeah. The guitar sounds on that record yeah. wounded me at the time. <laughs> we got to talk about Terry Brown and, and Paul yeah. Northfield. Paul Northfield is yeah. much responsible for the good sounds that the band had in the eighties. Yeah. Uh, Terry Brown. I mean, the, the band will tell you that there's, there's, there's not many albums that sound better.
Okay. Uh, all right, John. Uh, what's your big number one? Let's let's see it. We're going to number one, huh? Uh oh. Yep. Oh dear. Welp. Uh, again, Clockwork Angels was fighting with this one for number one, but it's a farewell to Kings. Mm-hmm. Is my number one. <clears throat> that was the album that. Uh, it's just it. It's a perfect record. I mean, now here's the interesting thing. Obviously, they surpassed themselves musically and beyond that. But as a whole, as this piece from where they were then and what it was and the era and everything that was happening. And as a 16 year old kid hearing that for the first time, hmm. you know, a guitar player, again, looking for I just come out of hearing um, uh, the, the live record. And then this happens and uh, Xanadu. And um, I learned it. It was, it was one of the, 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 the first real in-depth Rush song that I learned note for note, I mean, as much as I could. And um, I learned later that I learned a lot of it wrong, but I corrected that. Um, <laughs> you, know, <you're, laughs> you, you learned it the Wesley way. It's the Wesley yeah, Exactly. Way. You know, we didn't have digital back then, man. I was still dropping the needle, you know, and I was saying, oh, I got to hear that part again. Or, 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 you know, so uh, rewind the cassette. But then um, when I was in high school, I had to audition for a band. And the track I auditioned with was Xanadu. And wow, that's that's a big change from auditioning nowadays. I was gonna say, that like, doesn't happen anymore, does it? Smells like, smells like Teen Spirit. You're in. Yeah, exactly. You're in, dude. We did our audition. <laughs> My audition was Xanadu, and um, <laughs> I got the gig. And the drummer happened to be a massive Neil Peart fan, and is still playing with me to this day. Mm, wow, that's Mark Prater. That's amazing. Uh, so the first song we ever played together was Xanadu. Cool. Awesome. And just the guitar sounds, the lyrics, the, the places they went, the the, the adventurousness in the, in the playing. Um, again, it set my course for uh, into my early twenties. Um, so yeah. So farewell to Kings, man. I, I remember being sixteen and having to go stay with my aunt in Louisiana, and I took my little Cherry Sunburst Les Paul, and I could take one record with me, and I took uh, I took Farewell to Kings and. Uh, listened to it all summer long and played all summer long in that weird town in Louisiana. It was a dry county and it was, everyone would hang out down at the Sonic and I'd be listening to my Rush record. Held within the pleasure dome Decreed by Kubla Khan That's amazing. See, that's a that's a point in time that is that can never happen again. No. Yeah. Yeah. And you, uh, that, you brought up something too that I I even remember, which is trying to learn a song by vinyl. Oh right? yeah. 
that's that's also i mean you really had to want to learn that song if that's how you were doing it i mean yeah. that was not easy we probably, we probably time all had records where we were trying to learn and like that that part is just scratchy as hell because just <laughs> oh, yeah. going back over it like 300 times you know that's so I, and that record was ruined i still have the copy of that record oh, that's great man from that era and it's messed up <laughs> especially xanadu <laughs> yeah but that record changed my life so one, and, you know uh, th- i mean obviously cygnus x1 is on there that's a problem i yeah. mean that's it's not my favorite album by them but it it's it's great and yeah. cygnus x1 is sometimes my favorite rush song i just think that's a masterpiece of, of all space and time and dimension yeah. um <laughs> not to overstate it but um that that there's this breakdown in Cinderella Man. Oh yeah. That I think finds those three guys with about as much intuitive chemistry as they ever had before or since. Do you know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah. They're yeah. all free soloing. It's kind of yeah. like that breaking free will where they're just all yeah. three going off and you're like yeah, and, and not getting in each other's way. Exactly. They're, yeah, no, they're each all complimenting you know? each other, right? Absolutely. Oh God. Um, one last story from this record is, you know, through the years you, you get in and out of listening to music. And, and by the time I was in Porcupine Tree, you know, Rush was always a favorite, but I, I was chasing other things, listening to other things. And we're on a tour bus somewhere late in Germany, uh, late, late in Germany, lost in Germany, out in the middle of nowhere. And it's, it's 4.30 in the morning. And the um, merchandise guy had just gotten in his DVD copy of... Um, I want to say it was Russian Rio mm. and I hadn't really connected with Rush in a long time, listened to it in depth. And it was in the bottom lounge about four 30 in the morning and Steve's there and Steve's like, Oh, uh, what do you want to watch? And I'm like, well, AIDS got this DVD. I don't know if you like it, man. I don't know if you're a rush guy at all, you know, but, uh, you want to watch this? And he's, Oh yeah, I do. <laughs> and we hadn't yet talked about, and we talked about a lot of things, but we hadn't yet talked about our mutual admiration side. So as we're sitting there from 4.30 in the morning to 6.30 in the morning in Germany on a tour bus, just the two of us in the bottom lounge, this connection grew back to the band in, in, in this, you know, and it went all the way for me back to this time period when I started watching Alex on that video and realizing how much I'd stolen from him. (laughs) (laughs) Holy shit. That lick. Oh my God. Oh dear. Oh God. I hope he never heard that. Oh, I think, I think I play my bar chords like that. Oh wow. And Steve was going through the same thing and I didn't know. And then we started talking about it and we're like, Oh wow. We're both really big rush geeks in ways that, you know, we had been disconnected from. And I can't remember where we were at that time uh, as far as Alex playing on the next record, but Alex did a solo on the next record. Right, uh, on uh, Fear of a Blank Planet. On Fear of a Blank Planet. Um, and I had to play that solo. Um, Steve was like, I can't learn that. You, you learn it and just play at it. Because, you know, learning it was just, uh, there was, you know... <laughs> solo he played on that record was monstrous so he's like you know just kind of play at it and i came up with a version of it that was really good and people were okay with it and then we hit toronto and word comes down alex is coming to the gig and i'm like you're kidding me i'd never met him at that point and um and i can't remember at that time period whether i was writing with neil yet but i i it was different with alex you know what i'm saying it was different yeah there was the guitar thing there was that thing 
And uh, he comes to the gig and it, before the gig, I'm freaking out and I'm a panic. I'm calling my wife and I'm like, oh shit, what a, if he sees me play, he's going to know. If he's gonna, if he watches me play, honey, he's gonna know. I stole everything from him. <laughs> he's gonna know. <laughs> and that was my big fear. I was like, oh my god, he's gonna be out there watching. And it's not that I'm gonna fuck up or I'm gonna suck. It's he's gonna know. <laughs> and he came in and we met, and everyone was doing their thing. You know how Porcupine Tree can be. They can. Everyone in the band can be very, you know, into the, you know, not as exactly the social butterflies. Right. Right. So. Right. Pretty much before the gig, then it's just me and Alex standing there talking. And he was the nicest person I'd ever met. And he made me feel so comfortable. And then when the moment came and I played his solo and he was standing at the desk with a big old smile on his face and I didn't fuck up. And he never said, hey, by the way, what's the deal with stealing all my shit? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and we went on from there. We've been great. Very, very good friends ever since. That is awesome. I mean, that's oh, a really extremely funny. That's that's a really cool way to meet your hero. Yeah. In that one point where you're playing uh, his part, yeah. You know, I mean, for all that to come together the way that did, that's that's amazing. Yeah. Unbelievable. Yeah. And then my big fear, he's gonna know. <laughs> <laughs> he might have known. He just didn't say. It. He didn't say it. He's like, yeah, there's another one. Yeah. You know, you know, uh, you know I, I, John. I want to ask you about this about Alex's playing because sure. At the time in the. Again, so again, I'm just it references my where I was listening to the band in the beginning. But mm -hmm. in the late '80s and '90s, he wasn't soloing much, and he wasn't showing off much. Right mm -hmm. at that point, they became about the song, mm -hmm. and and he was more rhythm. And I never knew he was like this great guitar player, really. And oh, yeah. so I and people used to always rave about him. And I'm like, no, come on, there's Eddie Van Halen. That's that's what guitar is. That is a, Alex is just whatever. Those are rhythm chords. It's nothing. Mm -hmm. But but I mean, you go back earlier and you start to really see the mad genius that he was. But it again, it still wasn't in the uh, '80s metal shredder way. It was more like beyond that. I think. Oh, oh right? way beyond that. Uh, he had an expressiveness. Like he does these overbends. Um, you know, where he bends them out of pitch, but it's, it sounds like a scream and it's just this amazing overbend. And, you know, it was the first guy I really ever connected with that did that. And that really crept into my playing. And I actually had a producer later on try and tune that. And, and I he came back and he tuned my solo and he tuned all of the quote out of tune quote microtonal overbends that I had stolen from Alex, I made him go back and take all the tuning off. I'm like, look, dude, that's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what's also great about Alex? And he hears that he's going to know. <laughs> the, 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 we can go on about Alex probably forever, but like, oh, yeah. just like all the, the, the other two guys, you know, yeah. so, such masterful guys. But like with Alex, when they were kind of like shuffling the guitar off to the side in the eighties and I, you know, yeah. this was just yeah. to get where they wanted to go. He had to kind of rethink his role. And I think by the time of like, hold your fire, if you hone in on those solos on that album, uh, that's another album that I've just come to love, which I used to mm -hmm. actually kind of hate. Um, I, I just wasn't ready, but his solos on hold your fire are so bizarre and coming from this left field area, yeah. they work. And they're beautiful, and they're 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 just genius. I mean, they're really not to use the G word, but look. Oh, you can use it. Yeah, with him, I think you can. And and you know the the stuff. And he so he's reinventing all the time along with the band itself. And I think 
you know, this is what makes him a great guitarist. I, he's rated, but I still think he's underrated. I, he's, yeah. He should be on the cover of every other Guitar World magazine. <laughs> That's right. Not every third cover, every other, <laughs> every other cover. Right. Um, <laughs> and the other guys too. And I'm, I'm sure we can get more into that later, but you know, um, Getty on bass did oh. things that no one's ever heard of oh, um, while singing. Yes. Phrasing complex, complex lyrics over, you know, odd time signatures, yeah. melodies with odd time signatures. And then we have the whole Neil thing, which is this whole Island unto itself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that you can't even, it's just amazing. Those three guys found each other. Uh, oh yeah. I mean, yeah. it just wouldn't be the same. I mean, if Rutsi had never left and yeah, we wouldn't be talking right now. You know, no, just, no. Such, and, such uh, a special chemistry. Um, yeah. Yeah. The, you know, cool. the musicality of Neil's drumming. I mean that, you know, everyone right. always talks about the chops and the amazing this and amazing that, but he's the most, and you know, I've played with some good drummers, you know, Gavin, Neil Portnoy, uh, Mark, you know, I've played with some amazing drummers. Neil is musical in a way that no other drummer, I think, yeah. has ever been that musical. Well, he always played to the song, you know? Yeah. It oh, wasn't yeah. about, even on like Hemispheres, he played to the song. It wasn't, yeah. oh, showy, and here's my solo. You can hear his drums ghosting the lyrics. It's just yeah. mind-blowing. Yeah. Uh, that's good. Um, great stories, man. John, thanks for sharing that stuff. That's killer. Uh, Okay, my number one has been talked about, uh, so I'll jump right in. I'm going to go with Signals. Uh -huh. uh, That's like that. Yes. For yep. my number one. Um, I just like every song, and I think some of the stuff on there, we talked about Analog Kid. I think it's one of their best songs, maybe their best song. Um, Subdivisions is another one that I think is maybe their best song. Uh, that out, Those are the some of the older era uh songs that that i still like that i still listen to that i go to all the time and and i think from that area it was, it was sort of between that or moving pictures but you know i went back and dissected both recently to for this yeah and uh moving pictures the first side is utter genius hall of fame level genius yeah. but side two doesn't hold up for me as mm -hmm. much as signals as a whole um so I actually found side two, uh, I don't know. It didn't, I wasn't entertained as much as maybe I thought I would be going back and listening to it. But uh, Signals, I, I did think, uh, actually held up better for me. Um, sure, sure. So uh, that's my number two. Yeah. And I mean, if you look at, let's just look at the lyrics of one of the tracks. I mean, if you look at the lyrics of the Analog Kid, uh, you know, it could easily be in, in, in one of the top five greatest rush songs but if you think about being a 17 18 year old 19 year old kid and and reading through those lyrics and just the melodies that that getty came up for you move me you move me with your buildings mm. in your eyes mm. unbelievably beautiful yeah. and you know who doesn't dream of the fawn-eyed girl with the sun brown legs it's just yeah you're right that, that song yeah is, is that is you move me you know? part two when that comes in is so key because it just kind of brings it down a little bit and suddenly you're kind of floating because yeah. it's pretty kinetic. Otherwise, you've got that those great bass oh, runs. opening and the opening guitar licks. It's just yeah, like, yeah. Well, and you're like, is this the same song? What? Yeah, how does he do that? Yeah. That's, <laughs> well, that's why I said it's kind of like an epic, but not epic length. It just yeah, it's yeah. it's just vast and, and well, that that to me is is uh, well, I guess I'm going to say it again with moving pictures. Those albums together, even though this is even more so at the synth era, but those two albums together really showcase 
the best example ever of being technical prog and commercial at the same time. Sure. No yeah. one's ever done it better than those two albums, I think. How they got the complexity I, of yeah. Analog Kid assembled and put into a four minute and 46 second yeah, track. Yeah, I made that a single on radio. It's crazy. I have no idea. Right, mm -hmm. I know. Mm -hmm. That's the thing to me that's fascinating. Yeah. Good choice. Good choice. Great. Choice. Uh, all right, Jeff, number one. Uh, moving pictures. Thank yeah, God. I can't believe go. we talked, went this long. <laughs> well, I want to say to John, Farewell of Kings was the one I was like, is anybody going to mention that one? <laughs> because that's my number six on the Cygnus X yeah. one I already talked mm. about. But, you know, with yeah. due respect to that, Grace Under Pressure, the great moments on the later albums, you know, moving pictures is not only my favorite rush, but I've always, well, I've called it for years, my favorite album of all time. I'm not oh sure. yeah, Rush is my favorite band of all time. They're very, very, very close. I don't even pick one. I don't have to, so I won't. But this is my favorite album of all time. I think it's a perfect album too. A lot of people argue that well, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect album. It can always be better. But I don't know. Every time I get to the end of Moving Pictures, I'm like, I'm so satisfied that I, I would like if I had to, I would pay like probably like twelve thousand dollars to have that if if that was the only way I could listen to it again. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, yeah. it's very valuable to me. Like it's very, yeah. so, so this is why it's my number one. Um, yeah. I think it's the, it's the album that live I've covered the most songs off of this record that of any of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, God, how it's, many, who hasn't amazing. played yeah. Limelight and, and yeah. it's YYZ. And I mean, it's, it's, you know, vital signs. I used to do vital signs in a cover band and spring break in the eighties. Yeah. It, in Fort Lauderdale. You know what I'm saying? Awesome. Vital yeah, signs. That's awesome. Seriously. You know, Roy, Roy talked about the first side and what that is. And I think everybody kind of knows that side. It's still on the radio. Um, to me, the second side just kind of goes deeper. It gets more eclectic and um, reminds you that they're a prog band. And you get three yeah. very distinctively different songs uh, on that second side. But I, I think the album as a whole kind of just straddles that, like, early Rush thing, the 70s era, with where they were going to go. And I just think it's that perfect sort of amalgam of what rush is it just distills everything about them and it to me it just sonically sounds perfect i mean i i'm kind of an audiophile when i get a new piece of gear which unfortunately i can't afford to do that often but when i do i always test moving pictures because it's it's still yeah. kind of yeah. the standard um yeah. so it's got that to it i just want i want to talk about real quick i don't want to bore everybody but the way i got into that album the way i got into rush i was like real young I was a rock enthusiast. I was taking guitar lessons. I was thinking about taking the brave leap of growing out my hair, which in the small Iowa town I grew up in was forbidden. Um, yeah. I was obsessed with Marvel Comics, and I'm sitting there playing Centipede in an arcade when suddenly like Tom, Tom Sawyer kind of comes on the jukebox, and my yeah. mind was freaking blown. I was just, I think I was just primed 
for that at that time. I was yeah. And I, and I think we've talked about records throughout this whole thing. We were, we, we heard it when we were ready. Like Roy, Roy's presto thing is because, you know, you heard it at the right time. You know what I mean? Yeah. It was your first one, you know, and John talked about some albums that you heard kind of at the right time. It just, and it just stuck with you. So I think that's also part of my moving pictures fa fascination. So. Yeah. Well, it is one of those records you can just put it on and let it go. And you just, you, you never, you never, well, I mean, there aren't many Rush albums where you skip a track, but mm -hmm. you're certainly not going to skip around on that one. You're just going to let it play. You have to. And I remember hearing Limelight and those lyrics, right? And and that dream of being in the limelight when you're a you know 19-year-old kid. I see, yeah, I was 19, just about to be 20. You know, try, in a band trying to make it and Rush was our thing. And, and, you know, and you hear him describe what it's like being in that thing, you know? And then all those years later, when I got to be out with writing with him, and there were times, a couple of times when we were writing, it would be just him and I, and we'd pull into some place. And, you know, it was, it was that whole thing of, he's very private, you know, and is someone going to approach him? And is someone going to, you know, um, disturb the moment that he's living? He lives very much in the moment, you know, and it's like what we're doing right now, everything else is out there. We're, mm -hmm. we're, we're right here right now. And is someone going to, and, and he's very cool about it. If, if you come up to him when, um, when he's not eating, you know, or taking a piss, <laughs> if you just, you know, if you just approach him in a lobby, he's very cool. Um, in a parking lot. Great. But I could definitely sense the uncomfortableness because, you know, he, he, he didn't do this to be a star. He, yeah. do, he did this to do what he does, but having, chosen that and and you can see it and, and so in being in those situations with him the lyrics in this song took on a new meaning for me watching him deal with that you know a lot of the other guys are very gregarious and well but neil's very private you know and um and to see him and experience him going through the lyrics in this song is is, is a great was a neat thing how often are you with or have you been with one of them and uh Tom Sawyer comes on the radio. Like, I mean, it's like, cause that song's on the radio now in like a thousand stations around countries. Right. I mean, that's just the way it is. Yeah. There've been times, I mean, cause you know, Neil, uh, you know, we'd be in restaurants we'd be in um, uh, hotels. So there would be times like that. And, and if it did, you know, Michael would be the, would be, <laughs> would be the one to start mouthing it and playing the drums to it and going crazy. You know, <laughs> he's, he's amazing for that. So, you know, that's very cool. Uh, the, the great thing like, about Rush too is that, like, you, you hear about people like, "Oh, I'm so sick of Stairway to Heaven," or "I'm so sick of Hotel California," or all these overplayed FM yeah. songs. And I, I have yet to get tired of any popular Rush song. And, no. And I think that's what keeps moving pictures fresh for me. It, I've heard Tom Sawyer. I don't even want to count how many times, and it still yeah. has that excitement of going into an event and like. Oh yeah. The album and it event. transports me back to that whatever I was experiencing in that, that rush songs take me to a place for sure, you know? for sure. Cause they're so ingrained in, in areas of my life. You know, I dedicated my whole life to being a musician and a guitar player. So something that affected me so deeply um, when it hits my, there've been times in rush concerts I had to put my head down. I had to just sit there and just, you know, just put my head down and take deep breaths, you know? Yeah. So what was, what was each of yours favorite tour that you saw of the band? 
I didn't see him that much. I, I definitely, because I was tuned out in the 80s because of my, my metal fixation there um, for quite some time. But um, I saw him on Counterparts. I saw him on Vapor Trails. And I saw him on the Farewell Tour. I guess what, what counts as the Farewell Tour. They weren't calling yeah. it that, but we know what that is, the, the Time Machine Tour. Yeah. I have to say, despite you know his voice sounding a little ragged, just because the voice is the instrument that can't age very well, um, the Time Machine Tour was incredible. Absolutely incredible. Yeah. I, and Subdivisions was the one for me that, like John said, I had to put my head down and just think about what they meant to me and try not to freaking cry in front of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Um, I'm going to say the that that tour as well. Um, there was so much going on, you know. Um, I know that Neil was really torn about doing that tour um, because, you know, of his life with his daughter at that point. You know, he's like, I'm really happy. I'm really settled here. Mm. And yet I know that, you know, we really should do this. So I'm going to do this. And then to see him do it and do it to the level that he did, <laughs> uh, the level of excellence. And and you got to understand, too, he was writing every day. Um, and when I say writing, I mean, I'm talking writing. You know, well, we, saw, we watched that documentary that they talk about that, right? They'd get yeah. to a city and the band would go and set up and, and get ready for the show. And he'd go off writing and, mm -hmm. and just show up before <laughs> it was time to play. Yep. And, and he was always writing on the day off. So the day off would be a 10 to 12 hour writing day. Wow. And then a gig day would be a, a three to five hour day. Wow. And like, you know, on one particular gig morning, we were in Colorado somewhere and, you know, his word came down 530, you know, be on the bike at 530. And on that day, we did probably eight or nine hours uh, before a gig in Colorado and mm. Denver. Wow. Um, and he would out and, and go out and play those those shows. So, yeah. you know, that tour, but, you know, being fortunate enough to see Hemispheres was <laughs> freaking mind blowing. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Because it was the 70s, man. I mean, there was pot everywhere. Uriah Heap opened up, and it was the 70s. <laughs> Lots of hair, man. Lots of Lots of hair, and I'd never seen anything like it. But uh, just seeing the guys at the top of their game um, playing as well, or if not better than any time in their lives on, on R40 was, was the one. Mm, yeah. that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, guys, I think that's about a good place to stop. Um, I think we geeked out pretty good on Rush here. This is good. <laughs> I, don't, I, I don't think if you're a Rush fan, you can't, you can't geek out. I mean, no, yeah, that's sort thing. of that they go hand in hand, but I think we covered by the look of it because I wrote all out, down all the picks. I think we covered 10 of the albums, which is pretty, pretty good. Yeah. Pretty we got a good variety of, uh, of stuff here. I don't think there's anything. Well, if I guess fly by night might be one that maybe people yeah. think. Well, my wife would have a whole different take on it. My wife came to rush, you know, after we were married really late and she loves all the later stuff. I mean, grace yeah. under pressure. I, I'll bet we all yeah. really love that. I think love that fantastic record. album. So, love that you know, it's, it's hard with rush because they just, they really were that great in all the different eras. Well, moving pictures, you know, I, it, I struggled with not putting that in my top five, but I had to go to the ones that I was more emotionally connected with. Sorry, yeah, I, I covered you. you know? That's cool. No, I, I, I yeah, sort of figured, I figured between one of you two that's going to be on there, so I, yeah. I, didn't have the, I didn't have the stress of it. So Yeah, I mean, um, it, 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 this, was, this was really tough. Um, you know, it's like favorite bands. I've never thought of favorite bands. And then I go to bands that affected me most in my life. And Rush is, is you know, 
I look at my playing to this day. I was playing today with a Les Paul through a 1975 Marshall. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. it's kind of an effect. Very life. Very life. <laughs> well, awesome. All right, guys, I'll let you go. It's late. Thanks, Roy. Bye, John. Okay. Thank you for having uh, me. Thanks, I guys. And we'll talk it. again. Uh, I'll talk again real soon. Thank you again. Be good. Right Thank you so much. See you all. All right, bye.